1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. Last week we covered this um, from the perspective of what we see about the Thessalonians and Thessalonica. Um, this is our third, third step through Thessalonians. Now we're going to look at it in the same passage, and we're going to look at it emphasizing this time what we see about God and Jesus here in relation to this passage. So let's go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, <clears throat> remembering you before our God and Father, your works of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but all your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, there are a lot of things in this passage. There's a lot of of stuff to discuss. There are a lot of things to argue about in this passage. There are a lot of things to discuss. And and in the church in America, in the academic world, this passage is argued about a lot. And I think there's a reason that it's argued about a lot. And it's the same reason why Paul constantly had to write letters. It is because people are wicked. People are wicked. Can we all agree? Yeah. People are wicked, including us, and tend to make poor decisions in how they receive the Word of God. They tend to, let me say it again, people are wicked, and they tend to make poor decisions in how they receive the Word of God. Now, as we read 1 Thessalonians, one of the things that we need to be sure to grab hold of is that it means what it says. That's, it's simple. The Word of God means what it says. It's not trying to tell you something secret. It's not trying to tell you some code it's not trying to give you some sort of secret message. It, is me, it means what it says. You don't have to grasp every facet 
of early church history in order to grasp the Word of God. You don't have to have a working understanding of Roman history in order to understand the Word of God. It means what it says. You don't have to have been a Thessalonican to understand what it means. It is straightforward. Now, all that said, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful to know what was going on in Rome and in Thessalonica. It's, it's helpful to know how, how the context works. And that's why when we did the first message in 1 Thessalonians, we looked back at Acts chapter 17 to see what was going on because the Bible interprets the Bible. Right? The Bible is the best interpreter of Scripture. So when you read Scripture and it says that means this over here in another part of Scripture, then that's what it means. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's the first rule of hermeneutics. If it's somewhere else in Scripture and it points to that passage and says this is what that means, then that's what it means. That's right? why Jesus' words always frustrate the Jewish rabbis. Because they want to say, well, that's... Isaiah 53 is, uh, is reference to Israel, and Jesus goes, no, that's me. That's me. So Jesus' words point to that and say, that's about me. And in fact, Genesis points to that and says, that's about the Messiah. So we, we see this over and over. This is a critical thing to approach this text, understanding that it means what it says, and we need to take it for what it says. So let's, without any more of that warning. Let's dive right in. Chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God all, always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before God, our God and Father, your work and, and faith, I'm sorry, your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start here. First, they are the recipients. The Thessalonians are the recipients of prayers made on their behalf to God. They get prayed for. Now, I know what this feels like. I know what this means. I do this. We pray for each other here an insane amount compared to any other church I've ever been in. We pray a lot here, and we pray for each other. I hope you're praying for each other. I know, in fact, I don't hope. I know you're praying for each other. I know that as a church, this is kind of part of our DNA, who we are. We pray. We don't get a lot of other stuff. We don't have programs. We don't, we don't do a bunch of activities, but we do pray. We do pray. In fact, if you'll remember, the one business meeting we ever had was an hour-long prayer service. And that's what it was. And that's what it's going to be again by the way, when we have another one, and we will, it will be an hour long, it'll be prayer service. It'll be a prayer and worship service, and somebody will go, aren't we going to talk about business, and we're going to go, we just did. And that's what's going to happen. So that is how the business of the church runs. So they are praying, they're prayed for, and they're praying. And I want you to note about God, God is the recipient of your prayers. Just think about that for a minute. God is the recipient of your prayers. Not, not the other people, not the people listening, not the crowd, not, not the world, not the, not the things. God is the recipient of our prayers. When we get this wrong, when we begin to think that other people are the recipient of our prayers or that other places are the recipient of our prayers, we start to do goofy things. As a people, Americans, we start to do goofy things. Things like, 
apologizing to plants. I don't know if you saw this article several years ago about a university in Virginia, a theological university in Virginia, in which they had a chapel service where they set a bunch of plants up on stage and they apologized to the plants, praying that the plants would forgive them for destroying the environment. When we forget that there is a sovereign God, Lord over all things, who is recipient of our prayers, we start doing goofy stuff. We start doing ridiculous things. That's one example. Another example is when I, I have seen at churches where they will pray at somebody. Have you ever had that happen? We start doing silly things. When we forget God's the recipient, we start doing silly things where we're in a prayer circle and we begin to pray at somebody. We're, we really are trying to preach, but we end up praying at them. Oh, Lord, help sister so-and-so because she's doing this thing wrong and this thing wrong. She needs to be this way. You know, passive-aggressive nonsense. We don't do that here, just in case anybody ever tries that. We will call you on that. We will stop the prayer time and go, do you have something to say? And if you are unwilling to say it, we will tell you to be quiet. This is it's not acceptable. So that is, those are two, just two examples. But when we forget that God is the recipient of our prayers, we, we start doing goofy things. Another thing that we forget when we, when we forget that God is the recipient of our prayers, we start to think that those prayers don't matter. We start to think that they don't matter. So we stop doing them. But note Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Constant, look at how many times he emphasizes it. Pray for you all, always, constantly remembering you. He's going to say it again in chapter 2, verse 13. Constantly remembering you, thanking God constantly for you. So it's this constant prayer in every remembrance of you. Every time we think of you, we pray because we know That when we pray, we talk to the living God who brought Jesus back to life, who is the resurrection power. We pray to him so we know when we pray who is the recipient of our prayers and that empowers our prayer life. That empowers our prayer life. So first, we know God is the recipient of of our prayers. Second, remembering you before, check this out, our God and Father. He is our God and our, you can put an hour at Father too. Our God and our Father. He's one, ours. He's not mine. I don't possess him. He's not my thing. He's our God. Now, I think that this is Wild because there's so many different denominations and ideas and, and theological perspectives that we tend to get caught up in. Well, my God is not the same God as your God. And that might be true if the person doesn't believe Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. But if they hold to the basic Christian truth, Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, He is the Savior and He is our Lord. If, if they hold to that, then in general... And generally speaking, they are Christian. They're believers in general. So if, it, if they hold to this idea of Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, then they are believers, which means it's our God and our Father. When you became a Christian, you joined a family of faith. 
You joined a family of faith, albeit dysfunctional on this earth, albeit problematic on this earth, but still, it's a family of faith. They are out, He is our God. He is our Father. He is ours, not mine. I don't hold the, I don't hold the corner on Jesus. I don't hold the corner on God. He is, he's our Father, our God, ours. And if, if we will get that, if you'll really get that, then there's no hierarchy. There's no theological arrogance allowed. Because He's ours. And everything that we are sitting under is Him. And He's the one that holds the corner on knowledge and truth and wisdom. So He's our God and our Father. And then He says, we remembering before our God and our Father your work of, of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. So we remember uh, these things in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God. So first, loved by God. This is, there's three things we see here in this next little portion. He's loved, they're loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So we see first, he loves us. He loves you. Just for a moment, our God, our Father, loves you. He loves you, loves, loves the people of God. He loves the family. He loves you. You have been loved by God. Now, coupled with that love by God, coupled with being loved by God, you have this phrase right afterwards, chosen. You are loved by God, and He has chosen you. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Those two terms rattle people a lot. And they shake people a great deal. But remember what we came at the text with. It means what it says. Anytime someone reads a direct statement from Scripture and then says that doesn't mean and then quotes the direct statement from Scripture, be aware that they are denying the direct statement of Scripture. If Scripture says up is down, then up is down. That's what it means. As batty as it sounds. Now, just to be fair, it never says up is down. Don't panic. But we have statements in Scripture like this one where it says, chosen by God. That's not a... Tan- that's, listen, two things. One, that's not a tantamounted rejection of everything you do. Right after that, or right before that, rather, it says your steadfastness of hope and your work of love and your work of faith. Like, he, he's, he's not denying that you do anything. It's not what's going on here. Rather, he's saying God has loved you and has chosen you. That means that God selected you. Picked you. He chose you. And why did he choose you? Because you're beloved of God. Because he loves you. 
This, he didn't choose you because of your work. He didn't choose you because you're good enough. He didn't choose you because you're strong and mighty. He didn't choose you for those things. That's why Paul says it this way. That's why he follows your work of, we thank God for your work of faith, your work of love, and your steadfastness of hope. The reason he follows that with this is so you would understand that God has saved you because he loves you. Not because you measured up. God didn't didn't put you on his team because he needed all-stars. If he did, he's really bad at picking all-stars. Have you looked around at the church? I mean, any church. The the church large, big C. There aren't all-stars. I'll tell you what happens when we get an all-star in the church. They go for about 10 years really, really successfully. They get a huge church. They become really famous. And what happens? Immorality. That's what happens when all-stars are in the church. That's what happens. But God in His faithfulness and His goodness chooses you and me and says, I'm going to work in these. I'm going to work in this one. This one. I'm going to do it in this one. And and it baffles the world. Right? It baffles the world. So we see... God loves and God chooses. And then it says, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the, in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Now we read the way the church started here. The gospel came to them and it came to them rather mundane, simply. There weren't a ton of miracles there weren't a ton of things exploding. There wasn't, there wasn't angels from heaven, a choir coming down. There was simply Paul got kicked out of the synagogue. He got, he got argued with people in the synagogue for three weeks. And then he started a small church in Jason's house. And Jason and his buddies were just living like Jesus. Nothing special, nothing flashy. Thessalonica does not have a famous preacher in it. Unlike Corinth that had Apollos, unlike Ephesus that had Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and John the Apostle there, like unlike those churches, they were not noted for their social benevolence like, like Philippians, like the Philippian church. They weren't, they weren't noted for having big baptisms and, and huge waking services and big parties like the Philippians were. Rather, they were a quiet bunch of Christians in a small town that just wanted to be left alone and the government came and kicked in their door and drugged them before the Roman a mob came drags them before the Roman uh, government in the place and then they charged them a fine for what for being Christian they take a guarantee a financial guarantee from them for being Christian there's no miraculous thing they don't they don't get drugged before the Lord and then all, I mean, before the court and then the Lord shows up and strikes everybody dead. Nothing like that happens. There's no speaking in tongues here. There's no miraculous healings. But what there is and what Paul notes is that the Holy Spirit is there. How? How do you see it? Well, you see it because they're 
convicted. They have assurance. They simply believe. And they are Christian. That's what we see here. We see the Holy Spirit power in conviction of the Holy Spirit. Certainty. The word conviction means certainty or complete fullness. It's literally the word full fullness. It's it's literally what it is. Full fullness. This is assurance. This is validated in the same way when Paul and Silas and Timothy are there and they prove themselves to be of the Holy Spirit in their lifestyle. You see it says in that the, the word came to them in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul immediately goes, you know who we are. You know the kind of men we prove to be. In other words, he's telling them, look, God loves you. He's chosen you. He's brought the gospel to you. And we can see what God has done in you because of the way that you live is the same way we live. The way you live is the same way we live. There's that great old Francis Schaeffer phrase, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. And then, of course, every preacher has to add, it's always necessary to use words. I don't remember which famous pastor said that, but it's, he just adds that on to Francis Schaeffer's things. But this is an example of preaching the gospel by the way you live. Everything changed for them. They shifted off of idolatry. They shifted away from wickedness. And God did that. God did that in them. This is one of those things when people look at your life, they ought to say that there's no way that you could be who you are without the Holy Spirit moving. And indeed, for most of us who have been Christians for some time, if we look at ourselves in the mirror and we're honest with ourselves, we would confess the same thing. There's no way that I would be who I am were it not for the Holy Spirit. There's no way that I would respond in love to that person were it not for the Holy Spirit. There's no way that I would be able to press through that anxiety without the Holy Spirit. There's no way that I would, I would be able to refuse manipulating a situation in order for righteousness and goodness were it not for the Holy Spirit. There is no way I would be different were it not for the Holy Spirit. I am changed and rescued. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. I have been rescued and redeemed. I am changed because of the Holy Spirit of God came in conviction and in power in me. God has done this. God has made the movement. God has done the work. And verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned God from idols to serve the living and true God. They came to him in joy. This is what God gives them. God gives them joy In verse 6, 
He leads them to imitate Christ and to imitate Paul and Silas and Timothy. So they begin to imitate and follow after them and follow the way that they live. And in their obedience, they receive the word. This gets repeated again in chapter 2. They receive the word as what it is. The scripture, the word of God. They receive it for what it is, the word of God. And they sound forth the faith in God. All of that, the joy, the imitation of Christ, the desire to obey, is founded in the fact that the Holy Spirit came and landed on us in fullness and in conviction, with assurance. So how do you know that you're saved? This is one of the questions that everybody struggles with. How do you know you're saved? And if you ask the wrong person, they will tell you, was there ever a time in your life when you walked forward and made a decision? No. It's not how you know you're saved. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible gives you a series of tests and says, are you more like Jesus today than you used to be? Are you more like Christ today than you used to be? I'm not invalidating an experience. I'm not saying your experience doesn't matter. What I'm saying is we don't hinge our assurance on something that happened once. We hinge our assurance on who we are, on who our character is. You want to know if you're a Christian, look back on your life. Am I more like Jesus today than I used to be? And if the answer is no, repent and trust and follow him. If the answer is yes, you have your answer. Both ways, you'll be saved. It's a good question. It's a good question to ask. Am I, I'm just not sure of my salvation. Look back on your life. If, you, if you're not sure, repent and trust in Jesus now. Because you're still breathing. You're still breathing, so you can't. There will come a day when second chances are done. And you don't want to be at that question on that day. Because then the heavens get shut and judgment falls. So we see here that they are imitators of Christ. They have joy amidst affliction. That's one of the truths about Christianity that baffles everyone, right? Joy amidst affliction. Christians can be depressed and still happier than the other guy. I know this firsthand. Christians can be depressed and still happier than our neighbor. It's a wild, wild thing to be a Christian. We have ups and downs that pale. The world pales in comparison. And yet... We are the happiest people on the earth. I mean, if you really believe we're the, you know, how can you not be? Not only do we win in the end, but we win now. No rock can crush us. No financial burden can destroy us. He's awesome. Even in our depression, we're better off than everybody else because we know the living and true God of heaven and earth. And we understand who he is. How beautiful is this truth. So they turn from their idols to God who is living and true. Just for a moment, think about those terms. We serve a God who is living first. Living. He's not dead. Which is contrast to all the idols of the world. Money, fame, success. All those things are dead. They don't actually have any life in them. 
They might inspire, but they don't have any life. Now, these Thessalonians were literally turning away from blocks of wood. Idolatry, blocks of wood. What Isaiah calls worthless blocks of wood that you had to carve yourself that can't do anything for you. And he laughs at them. And then, and then you see in the other prophets in Ezekiel who, who points at them and mocks them. Right, saying, what can a block of wood do that you had to carve yourself? It's so weak, you had to make it. So weak. So we have this, this statement here that they turn from those things to a living God. A God who is alive, who's active. Remember Jacob's vision in uh, Genesis when he sees God at Bethel and there's a ladder going up and down from the earth? And the angels of the Lord are descending and ascending on the ladder. You realize that happened in Genesis as a sign to God's people that God was active on the earth. That the living God was actually active on the earth in Genesis. Thousands of years ago. In Genesis, God was active on the earth. He's still active now. In fact, Jesus says... I'm the reason God's active on the earth when he looks at Nathaniel and he says, you, you marvel because I saw you under the fig tree reading the law. I tell you, you will see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Jesus very clearly saying, I'm the ladder between God and earth. In other words, I have been here from the beginning. I am living and active. I have been here the whole time. Now your eyes are going to be open. How Incredible is it that we have a God who is living and active. He is living and he is active. And he is true. He is true. Christians have the market on truth. No one else does. When someone starts spouting things that are speculation that fly in the face of scripture, you can pretty well with certainty look at them in the eye and say, no, Bible says otherwise. I'm going to trust it. Even when we sound crazy, we are always proven right. Always. There's not one time in history when Christians point to a scripture passage that is true, a statement in the Bible. There's not one time when legitimate Christians... Now, there are times when people twist it, disregard those. There's not one time when a legitimate Christian reads a passage of scripture and it says, this is how that happened... And then they were proven wrong. There's not one. There are multiple times where people speculate and go, maybe this means the Bible's wrong, but they can't prove anything. And they, they don't have proof. They have speculation. Oh, goodness. We could talk for hours about the speculation of the scientific community and the political community and Christians dealing with the Bible and all that stuff. We could talk about that for hours, but needless to say, when we see the Word of God says one thing, we can rest in the fact that we have the market on truth. Because God is true. Because He's true. It's one of His defining characteristics. If somebody said, can God lie? Your answer should be no. God cannot cease to be God. He is true, and He is truth incarnate. Now, finally, look at verse 10. So they've been, uh, let me read it so it makes sense. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God 
from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, a few things about God we see here. One, he's got a son. He's got a son. He's got a son who he raised from the dead. We have an interesting theological thing just to pack away and put in your brain so you understand it. Jesus Christ died and God raised him from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead. The resurrection happens at the hand of God the Father. The death happens at the hands of men who murder him. But it is on behalf of God sacrificing his only son so that we might live. So we've got this theological truth. God sacrifices his son. God also raises his son. He has a son whom he raised. Now, just for a moment, think about what it means with his relationship to you that he knows what it means to have a son. He knows what it means to have a son. And he calls you his child. He knows what it means to have a son and he calls you his child. He adopts you into his kingdom, making you, get this phrase, fellow heirs. Fellow heirs, not servants, not slaves, not those kids that I take in out of goodwill. No, fellow heirs. He gives you a kingdom. He adopts you as a son and he knows what that means. He knows what it means. He adopts you as his son to wait for his son from heaven. So there's something for us to wait for. He is coming back. He's coming from heaven. Whom God, whom God raised from the dead. A couple things we see about Jesus. Jesus literally died. He didn't swoon. He didn't sort of die. He didn't kind of die. He didn't spiritually leave his body and come back. He literally died. He died. He was dead in the ground and then rose again to life. He defied death by the resurrection power of God the Father. He was was resurrected. He was brought back. He was given life again. Second thing we see is he's in heaven right now. He's in heaven and we wait for him to come back. We're waiting for the physical return of our king. Now, this sounds crazy. We believe that the Son of God subjected himself to death, died. Deity itself, God. God made flesh. Jesus Christ. In His humanity, He comes, He lives on the cross, He dies, He gets resurrected. This We believe this. And not only do we believe this, we believe He walks around for about 40 days afterwards and then floats into the sky. And there were 500 people or so that saw Him 
fly up into the heavens. And two angels showed up going, what you guys looking at? Why are you standing here? He's going to come back the same way he left. And then there were a bunch of visions that happened to his disciples where they said, hey, you know, Jesus is going to come back and, and he's going to come back and he's going to be on a horse and he's going to have a sword out of his mouth and he's going to be on fire and it's going to be amazing. We sound crazy. Except that it's true. And like I said earlier, when the Bible says something's true, it has yet to be proven wrong. The track record of this thousands-year-old book is greater than any other book in history. The track record of the church, the Christian church, is greater and more long-lasting than any group in history. The, the Jewish religion is the only one that comes close. And guess what? We got grafted into that one. So that counts as ours sometimes. And this is one of those occasions when we can say our God has attested to himself since the beginning of time. And he's coming back. We wait for him to come back and to do what? Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there is a lot to say about the wrath to come. There's a lot to say about the wrath to come. We're going to talk a lot about that as we go on through 1 Thessalonians. But I want to just give you a little preview. The wrath to come is the judgment of God on the earth. It's talked about in the Bible. It's talked about in the Bible. It's talked about as bowls being poured out, trumpets being blown. It's talked about as wars being started. It's talked about as, as monsters coming up from the deep. It's talked about as worldwide destruction. That's the wrath to come. It's talked about very clearly in the Bible. And what did we start with? The Bible means what it says. Bible means what it says, and it says we're spared from the wrath to come in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know rapture. I don't. I don't know. I'm, you want to rapture? You want pre-trib? You want pre-mill? You want all these things? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm saying I'm looking at this, and if we're delivered from the wrath to come, seems like there's a logical argument to be made here for some sort of rapture. We'll get into that as we keep going. But this morning, I just, wanted to, I just wanted to throw that out there. It's not a definite statement. The Bible never definitely states, yes, you're going to be, you know, and then there's, you get in the rapture. It never, never says that. But it says things like this. It says things like you will be spared from the wrath to come. And, and understand wrath is different than tribulation. We're promised tribulation. We're promised trouble. But we are also told constantly that we're spared from the wrath of God. So what that looks like, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out as we go through the rest of 1 Thessalonians. But let's grab hold of this. That Jesus Christ justifies you from sin, from death, and saves you from the punishment of that sin and death, which is the wrath of of God. He saves you from the wrath of God by bearing the wrath of God upon himself. So you trust in Jesus. We wait for the Son from heaven, 
whom was raised from the dead. We know he's coming back because God overcame death in him. So we know that his promise is true. And we wait Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What Romans 5 is going to call the wrath of God. We are delivered from and saved from the wrath of God because we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. He has rescued us and saved us and we can trust him. We can see that God has loved us, that he has chosen us, that he is the recipient of our prayers, that he has made us holy in him, that he has walked with us, that he has put his spirit inside us and we are able to live with full conviction that he raises Jesus from the dead, that he's going to raise us from the dead, that he's the living and true God and we can trust that he's going to come back and set all things right. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would be glorified